bringing meaning to the void. Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and this is the opening sermon in a series on the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 12, and we're going to take this from the angle of examining the built-in morality that is found deep within these stories. Now, many of us have read through Genesis 1 through 12, and many of us even are able to understand the morality that is found there, even if we're not able to articulate it. The purpose of this sermon series is going to be to walk through the book of Genesis opening 12 chapters very slowly so that we can really take a close examination of this morality that is built deep within these stories. And it's really fascinating how we're going to do this. Today, we're opening up with Genesis 1, and we're going to be looking at how God brings meaning to the void. For the void, it is not good. And in fact, there is not good in the universe. The only thing that is good is God when we go to Genesis 1. And it opens up with this interesting, interesting dialogue where God himself, he is talking and creation starts to exist. And I say dialogue because as God starts to exist, the goodness which was previously just exclusive to being within God's being, God starts to speak it and other things start to be and we're using the word be and what it actually means. The verb to be, other things start being. And they can have qualities of good too. And God starts to talk and things are happening in the universe. And there are multiple things which are good. But of course, the things which are not God, their goodness is derived from God. It's a very complicated thing, but at the same time, it's a very beautiful thing. So what we know is that the void, it is not good. It is the absence of meaning. It is the absence of substance. And one of the opening questions we might have for Genesis 1 is this. Can the earth itself, you know, this place where we live, can the earth have qualities that are good? Can there be good on earth without there first being a heavenly domain where those good qualities exist? As God starts to establish meaning and bring the universe into being, we have these questions. Where does good even be around us? Where do we see it? How can we reach out and touch it? Is it a matter of substance? Is it a matter of meaning? These are all very important questions. We know that God uses his word to speak creation into existence, and that is a very powerful thing. For those of us who are part of Christianity, we understand that the second person of the Holy Trinity is Christ Jesus, who is the word of God incarnate. Furthermore, the word of God is not oftentimes what we think of. It's not limited to just being the Bible, though the Bible is revealing God's word to us. We know that the word of God, it is older than human language. It is older than human written language, for sure. It is older than the even idea of humanity itself. It goes all the way back to God's being when he starts speaking there in the beginning of Genesis. So without any further hesitation, let's jump right in to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the opening verse in Genesis chapter 1. Now, this is a very profound theme for the opening of Genesis. For we see God establishing exactly where his jurisdiction is. And his jurisdiction is not limited. It is all of the cosmos. For those of us in the Christian world, it's common for us to understand that God has universal jurisdiction. However, this is something which is, un is quite unique in terms of how people have understand deities throughout history. It's very unique within Christianity. Throughout the history of the world, gods did not have universal jurisdiction. They were not those who would speak the universe into being. But instead, they were limited. They had a little bit of territory here or there. They might be a god king. They might be one who has a specific task. They might have authority over a specific activity, such as weather, 
predictions or something of that nature, but they never had universal authority. And one of the interesting things that happens here is not only does God have universal authority, but this is the only way that one can have good. The only way that one can actually get to this virtue of goodness is through having a God that is the one over the heavens and the earth. Without that, you have nothing but fractured morality. Whenever we look at the gods of history, they have never been responsible for universal morality. They've never had a universal moral code or anything of that nature. Whenever we look at polytheistic worldviews, they always lack universal morality. There's no overarching truth for the people to live by because there's no overarching source for that truth to come from. Without a God that has complete and, author complete and authentic authority to create heaven and earth, there can be neither universal morality nor universal liberty. And that's an interesting thing that we find in this opening statement too. Because the goodness of God, it is not limited to one area. It's not limited to one domain. It can be found both in heaven and in earth. It has some sort of universal liberty. And for those of us who enjoy liberty and we enjoy the responsibilities that come with it, we must look and recognize that that liberty comes from something greater than we could ever imagine. This notion of universal liberty can only be found in God and the characteristics of good, which are derived from God. Without a God that has complete authority to speak heaven and earth into existence, there can be neither universal morality nor universal liberty. Let's slip on into verse 2 now. Genesis 1-2 reads as follows, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Alright, in verse 2 we get an introduction to the void. Now, a very reasonable question we might have is, well, what is the void? Is this some idea of a pocket universe between other universes? Is there like a pocket dimension where there's just water there? If you read something like the Chronicles of Narnia, you know there's different worlds and things going on. You might ask if the void is something like that. If you're into science fiction shows, you might think that, well, maybe it's like a, a small pocket dimension. Or if you like video games, you might think of something like the, the Dishonored series where there's a void and sort of an off-centered, off-canter magical place. But none of those things is really what the void is in Genesis. In Genesis, the void is a place where there is an absence. There's no substance. There is no meaning. And that's a very important thing. But there's also no good. The void is an absence. It is, well, as the word void literally means, it is a void. It's not a small pocket universe over to one side, but it is nothing. It is an emptiness. And this is actually where we find chaos. Very interesting built into verse 2 is this idea of chaotic waters. Now, throughout the history of the Jewish people, they have used chaotic waters to conceptualize, well, chaos in the void itself. If you've ever been near water, it can be rather spooky. Some of the deepest places on this earth are within our sea, and they contain things which we have no idea about. There's all sort of weird sea monsters that are down there. If you've ever seen something like a squid or a cuttlefish, you will know that the sea is filled with mysterious things. Furthermore, it covers a lot of our planet, and as far as things that we know about, there are so many unknowns about how the sea works. And on top of that, if things sink into the water, well, they're probably gone for all practical purposes forever. When a ship goes down, <clears throat> the chances of being re recovered and returning to use are pretty much non-existent. A lot of times when things go underwater, that is their destruction. It is their ultimate doom. <clears throat> And this is one of the aspects of chaos here. The chaos that we find in this is the ultimate destruction of meaning. 
And that's one of the lessons that we find in this. Earlier, I mentioned that Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. And that's a very important thing because when we think of the Word of God, oftentimes people immediately go to Scripture. But again, the Word of God is much more than that. When we look at this void here, it is a place without meaning. God's Word, it brings this void, this place without meaning, to a place where it has meaning. And Christ, the manifestation of this tool, is instrumental in bringing meaning. It's taking people out of suffering, taking people out of this eternal doom. It's taking people to a place where there's meaning and there's eternal life. Furthermore, that brings us to the concept of the Antichrist. Just like the Word of God, it is a language tool of bringing order to chaos. Or, yes, order out of chaos. But one of the things which the Antichrist does is it also, in my estimation, is a language-based tool which takes people back to a place of chaos. When we look around our modern world, I actually like that we have the language to say fake news because it's bringing a very complex idea down to very basic language. The idea of sophistry, of fake news, this is the Antichrist incarnate. When we ever look through the New Testament, there's not just a single Antichrist, but there really are multiple of them. And it's wherever we find people doing something, oftentimes language-based, to bring the world away from meaning, away from rationality, away from purpose, and taking it back to this chaotic void that we find there in the beginning of Genesis. Now, oftentimes we hear of chaos and we think of something jagged and ugly and nasty and perhaps unpredictably moving around quickly. But really, why something would ever be able to behave in that manner is because it lacks meaning or person or, or predict, any sort of predictability in its characteristics. And that is a very, very bad thing. All right, let's go on to verse 3. Because in verse 3, we get this next statement. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. This was the first day. All right, so we see a lot of things in verse 3, 4, and 5 here. On this first day, we find that God is bringing about good. For the first time, as God is speaking creation into existence, there is good in creation. And I'm not just meaning that God's presence is not good. What I'm saying is God has put something which is not explicitly inside himself. He has something created now that has qualities of good. And what is fascinating from Genesis is that something cannot be good without meaning. The light, it has a purpose. It is establishing day. It's establishing time. This is the very physics of the cosmos coming together. And the physics of the cosmos, they have a purpose. And because they have a purpose, therefore they can be good. One of the things which is interesting is at the, when it comes to the modern debate, people always sling this argument at the church that, oh, you're against reason, you're against rationality. And the stories of creation are one of the places where they particularly go to say, oh, well, you believe all this, though you don't believe in reason. Literally, the whole story of Genesis 1 is that God is a God of reason. The reason why God comes and says that the light is good is because it has reason. Like this is literally what is going on in this text. Without reason, without rationale, there is no good. God coming in Genesis 3, or 1-3, he comes and says, let there be light. He is speaking this into being, and it has a purpose. It is to establish time. The laws of physics of the cosmos are starting to work together. And out of that, goodness is starting to manifest. And it's a very, very fascinating thing. 
Of course, one of the implications that we find here is that without meaning, without purpose, things are not good. It's quite clear that God is not pleased with there just being a void. He wants there to be a created universe that has meaning and purpose and order. And that's a very, very fascinating thing. Let's go on just a little bit further. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, it reads as follows. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse and the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. All right. We are looking at the built-in morality here. I know there will be a lot of people who will come to this and they'll debate and say, well, when it says heaven here in Genesis 1, it's not really talking about heaven. It's talking about the sky. All of that really is beside the point of what this is teaching us. What this is teaching us is that there is an established good, which is overarching, that is longer in its territory than the limitations of the land and mass and things we'll find coming in the next few verses. But there is a established heaven where good is. There is a domain of good which is stretched across. And in that, we really do find something quite fascinating. Because one of the initial questions we have when coming to this topic is, can there be good on earth without there first being a heavenly domain where good exists? And I think quite clearly the answer is no. Virtues, things of that nature, they must be larger than any one of us. They must be able to go from generation to generation to outlast how any of us would live and outlast cultures and, and worlds and even the physical geography around us. When we go back to ancient Greece, we find philosophers like Plato who spent a lot of time talking about the world of the forms. And even if you go back to Aristotle, he had this idea that there really is virtue in the world. It's not just people going out and behaving because they want to be good because they're being paid to. Again, that's one of the arguments you find in Job. But instead, what you find is there really is sincere virtue. And the virtues exist on a higher plane than we do. And one of the things that we find going on on this second day in Genesis is God is establishing a higher plane that has qualities that are good. We find this heavenly domain being established. And again, even if you think about it being the sky, again, that's above all of us. I don't know if any of you are capable of flying and you exist in the sky perpetually. If, if so, uh, we may need to have a meeting about that because um, the human species, we do not have wings. We, we have to have aircraft to take us up there. We do not permanently reside over there. But anyways, the idea is that there is something above the normal state of humanity, and that has qualities that are good. And I think the order of Genesis is quite interesting. And let's go just a few more verses and see how all this ties together. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, it reads as follows. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. So once there is established a heavenly domain that is good, then there can be established an earthly domain that is also good. And I think that's an interesting sequence of events because when we look at our lives and we look at the virtues we live by, this modern motif that something written 200 years or 2,000 years or even 4,000 years ago could not have any application today, it's absolutely ludicrous. When we look throughout history, we find that while we do get new technology, 
Morality does not change. It's a very foolish thing to think that because we have better tools than our ancestors that we would somehow be tied to a different moral code than our ancestors. Morality, virtue, these are things which are truly transcendental. We always find people wanting to invent new virtues, but they're always cheap, they're always hollow, and they always lack meaning. They always appear to be virtuous, but they really are more like the Antichrist. They take people back to a void rather than take people to a positive place. They take things which don't have any moral value, and they try to attach moral value to it, and it causes chaos. When we go back to Genesis, we find that there are some very primal things which have virtue established in them. And virtue itself, it is established at a place higher than, well, the earthly domain that humanity will ultimately reside on. And this is a really, really fascinating order of events. From the moral standpoint, we really are challenged to decide whether or not we can actually be good if we do not, first and foremost, have overarching virtues for us to live by. Without there being a heavenly domain of good, there cannot be good on earth. And furthermore, there cannot be a heavenly domain that is good without a God speaking that goodness into existence. Without there being a single universal point, without there being something there in the center of good, there can be none of these other things. And that is what we find here in Genesis 1. Let's pick up in verse 11. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and the trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. As creation starts to settle in, we find that the meaning given to the different particularities in creation starts to get a little more advanced. Furthermore, as things start getting more advanced, we also start seeing things which tend to have a shorter duration. Plants, for instance, they don't last quite as long as, well, light. We, we know that light is something which is strange. It kind of behaves like a particle, but also not really. It takes a long time for a, a beam of light from the sun to actually reach the earth. We know that life is something, or light is something which has a very long span. It can stretch for years and even thousands of years and millions of years across the universe. But something like a plant, its life cycle is much shorter. As creation settles in, we find that simple things with simple purposes start to evolve to a little bit more complex thing with a little bit more complex purpose. But as that complexity of purpose starts to advance, its cycle also starts to get a little shorter, which is a very interesting thing because one of the first things that God establishes is time. And light itself, while it is at the center of a lot of things and it does so much for the world, it is also something which is, well, remarkably simple when compared to a lot of other things. It is something which is an essential fundamental aspect of creation, and it is so fascinating to see how Genesis 1 unfolds. Genesis 14, we start to find again a continuation of meaning. When God looks at the earth, when he looks at the heavens, when he looks even at light, the, all of these things, they have meaning. They are designed with an intent in mind. Genesis 1 verse 14 reads as follows, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse and the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs for the seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, 
the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God said to them in the expanse of the heavens to get to give light, give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Again, now we get time brought all the way down to day cycles. Again, plants, they tend to have a longer cycle than a day, but yet plants have a shorter cycle than something like geography, land. <laughs> they have a shorter cycle than, than the, the heavens, and they have a shorter cycle than even light itself. As we find this, the, the time span of things starts to unfold, and it's just interesting because something like a plant and something like birds flying above, these things, they have a higher purpose. They have a more complex being. And that is very, very interesting. And let's, let's go a little bit further. As we, we have seen the days come, we also start to see God bringing into existence a few more things. Let's pick back up in verse 17. And let's go all the way a little bit further and talk about some of these creatures. Verse 17 and God set them in the expanse in the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. As creation starts to fill in even further, we find more complex beings with more complex purpose. But the ultimate complexity has not yet arrived. And we're going to go just a bit further, and we're going to take a hint at humanity. We're going to actually wrap up this sermon pretty, pretty shortly now, but I want you to ponder about this ultimate climax that we find in Genesis 1. God said, let, this is verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock of all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he had made. And behold, everything was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, 
the sixth day. God has will and reason. In Genesis 1, the biggest takeaway we can have is that you cannot have good without reason. God gives humanity dominion over all the earth. Interestingly, that is not the same thing as having dominion over the universe. They're still under God's authority. They are the, the one being on earth, on this land, that will have the ability to use will and reason in a similar way to the way that God does. They themselves are not to make themselves up as idols, but they are to be the image of God on this earth. Furthermore, everything around them has meaning. There is a strict rationale and a strict order to creation. When God looks at the world, he realizes that places without order, places that are chaotic, places that are nothingness, they're not good. There is no good without meaning. And God, as he comes, he wants to give things purpose. In our world, we live in a day and age where people want to rip away the ability for people to think. They want to say, well, what if everything's a social construct? One of the most ludicrous things I have ever heard is the social constructionist theory, that everything is just a social construct. The older I get, the more I realize that there are actually very, very few things which are social constructs. It's just objectively how it is. The world is not just a pure subjective place that is manifestations of people's imaginations, but instead our imaginations are products of the world around us. And while we may not perceive the world as accurate as we should, there is an objective reality around us. One of the old arguments we have within the church, a man named Anselm used to say, God is that than which no greater thing may be thought. And myself, I have come to realize there's a version of that argument for God that is quite simple. God is that than which no good boy may best. And when I say good boy, yes, I am referring to dogs like my two puppies, Count and Charlie. I say puppies, one's like 12 and the other's about five or six. But dogs are actually capable of understanding good. Dogs understand that some things are good, some things are not good. And in fact, some dogs are better at perceiving good than others are. When we look at animals and we see that different animals have different purposes. Cattle has a different purpose than does a cat. And even dogs and cats, they have a little bit different purpose themselves. Yes, as humanity has domesticated different animals, their line in creation is different from the line of, of purpose that another animal may have. And this is something where we, as those created in the image of God, we have the ability to go out and think and use reason ourselves. And it fascinates me that dogs really are capable of understanding good. When you come home and I've got different bags and things that I may have in my hand, my dog Count, he is more than capable of figuring out which bag has a stuffed animal in it. I don't know how he knows that, but he knows very quickly which one has, and he knows that a stuffed animal is very good. But it's also something you find throughout the world and throughout human History. Dogs are capable of understanding and loving their family. They understand that while people may be a different species than they are, they are still part of the pack. They understand good. And that is something which is not a social construct and it's not unique to any culture. It is part of the fabric of creation. Good is something that is rare and precious and it comes from God and it comes from God's meaning. And that is where I want us to end today. I want you to spend some time. Think about the built-in meaning found in Genesis 1 and how you cannot have good without having meaning. Thank you for watching. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, please reach out to me. Again, I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor here at Kingdom of the Logos.